Um, so we're going to continue on in Acts. Um, we, we started back up last week because the holidays are finally over, thankfully. <laughs> but uh, just as a, as a quick review, what we talked about last week, we, we saw two people who presumed to stand in certain God-appointed positions. One was King Herod Agrippa, who, who um, put himself and, and Rome put him in the position of king of Judea. And then we, we saw a false prophet um, along with a, a Gentile proconsul who the uh, apostles had to rebuke and reprimand for leading people astray from the truth. And what we learned is to very much make sure that if you are going to proclaim yourself a prophet or some kind of God-appointed authority, that we know first and foremost that it is from God and we do not ever use it for personal gains, glory. It's never about us. It's always about Him and to always remember to humble ourselves because the gift ultimately comes from Him and it's not just because we're just so special and awesome. Because we can see that God does rebuke and humble people who won't humble themselves on their own. Um, because in the meantime, we saw these two people. We saw King Herod put on his wonderful royal attire and give this great speech. And everyone's giving him divine praise. And God strikes him and humbles him. In the meantime, we talked about last week, the disciples and the apostles humbled themselves there was nothing special about them. They, they wore just normal, regular clothes. They didn't walk around trying to show off or anything. And yet, God blesses them and has the Holy Spirit within them through Christ Jesus and doing all these wonderful works. So we learned last week, you know, watch out for false prophets and watch out for the fact that people may look good on the outside, but on the inside, they're really rotting. And that's what Jesus kind of, you know, warned us about. So ground yourself in his word. Make sure you're not being led astray just because someone says, I'm a man or woman of God or I'm a prophet of God. Watch their words and their actions very carefully because that's a very specific gift that God gives people. So before we continue, let's go ahead and pray. Holy Father, again, we thank you for all of these examples that you've given us. We thank you that we can take a look at the early church and we don't have to try to compare ourselves to this so-called perfect church because, as we've seen, they were never perfect, but they always at least listened to you. So, Father, help us to take those examples, learn from them, and humble ourselves to you and to find the things that are important to you and take away things that we think are important. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So today we're going to start in Acts 13. We're going to look through 13 through 15 today. Now when Paul and his party set sail for Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent, sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So, notice, Paul and Barnabas 
prophets from God said, hey, set aside Paul and Barnabas for, for my work. They immediately get sent out. And notice they're going further and further away from Israel. They're now in Perga, which is in modern-day Turkey. They're traveling more and more into heavily Gentile-populated areas. But as Jewish men, they still have this custom. They go and find the Jewish community in there, and they find a synagogue, and that's one of the things that they do first. They maintain their Jewish tradition by going to the synagogue. And Jesus demonstrated this because even Jesus himself, it always said, as was Jesus' custom, he went into the synagogue and so on and so on. So to a certain extent, you know, these are, these are Jewish men still doing Jewish things and there's nothing wrong with that. Just because they're now believers in Jesus doesn't mean they have to wipe everything out. They can't go to synagogue anymore. They can't do anything else. But we do get a glimpse of a, a typical service at the time of the first century within the synagogue. Um, this is, of course, which is opening in prayers that were offered. Then there was a reading of the law. As a matter of fact, I think I have a comparison here. There's a reading of the law. There's a reading of the prophets. And then they allow an educated person who is there, to get up and speak about the topics that were related to the particular readings. And, of course, humans don't change because to this day, Sunday morning, most places have an order of service, just like the modern church today. What do we do? We have a greeting time. We have a prayer time. We do a couple of songs. We then have announcements, do a few more songs, and then there's a message from the pastor. Now, is there any real biblical basis? Does the Bible tell us how our services are supposed to go? No. Which is why it's kind of ridiculous when people argue about things like that. I mean, we can make church service however we feel we need to make church service. So all of these arguments about what we should do are really kind of pointless because we see Paul demonstrate that during a typical synagogue service, he takes advantage of the routine because he's about to be able to get up and talk to them. Because remember, it says that the invitation is for an educated man to come up and speak. And Paul actually very well fits into that description. He talks about it multiple times. And in Acts 22, he talks about how he was taught by Gamiel, a highly reputable and respected rabbi, even to this day, that rabbi's words are still quoted by Jewish rabbis and leaders today as one of the cornerstones of rabbinic teachings. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul talks more about his qualifications, about being a Benjamite, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and a Pharisees. So the synagogue freely accepts Paul to get up and to say a few words. And in fact, we see that Paul, in this case and later on, uses his position. He will often bring up his position within either the Jewish community or even among the Romans. But it's never to gain anything for himself. It's always to have an opportunity to preach the gospel. Every single time. 
And then, so he gets up, and he starts speaking, and he's going to share the gospel, but he's going to do it in a very, very Jewish way. He's going to start from the beginning. Well, kind of the beginning. What happened? I'm pressing the wrong button. That's what's happening. I know how to work technology. I promise. I'm a millennial. Acts 13, 16 through 19. Then Paul stood up, motioning with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. Okay, this is a very Jewish way of speaking. He's starting from the time of the Exodus. Remember what God did here. Remember what he did in Egypt. Remember what he did for our people. He rem he's telling them, and I think this is almost on purpose, he's saying, remember when God delivered our people from oppression and slavery and sent us to the promised land and he gave us the promised land? And despite their disobedience, God still keeps his word and delivers the people after 40 years of wandering into the promised land. This is very intentional because like almost everything within the Old Testament, this is, of course, is a shadow of what Christ does for every single one of us. Even though we've shown great disobedience and rebellion, he still brings his one and only son who willingly takes on the punishment for our sins. And now through his blood and his resurrection, we have been delivered from oppression and slavery of sin and death and so on. So Paul is being very intentional with his words. And then we'll see him continue on. Let's see if I press the right button. Yay. Verses 20 through 22. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterwards, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. When he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. So Paul here moves on to the time of the judges and the kings, and he reminds them that for a time, for 450 years, God was Israel's king alone. It was only God. He sent them judges to determine God's will, but God was their king. But after a certain time, the people asked for a particular king. They wanted to be like everybody else. So God gave them Saul for about 40 years. But unfortunately, because of his disobedience and unrepentedness, he was then removed as king. He was taken away. And then God decides to then raise up David and declares him a man after his own heart who will do his will. Again, Paul is setting things up because he knows that the people who are listening to him will remember that God specifically made a significant covenant with David, that God promised an everlasting kingdom to David, that his lineage will forever be on the throne of Israel. 
And so he knows that his listeners will remember this because in the Jewish community, even if you didn't continue with your education and became a rabbi, you as a people of Israel will memorize these stories of David, of Moses, of Abraham, of Jacob, of all of these things that are happening. So when Paul says David, they know all of the things that go along with David. And then now he finally then decides to pull the trigger. Acts 13, 23 through 26. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. So we see Paul flowingly go from Moses, who tells Israel that God will raise up a prophet like him one day, which is, of course, a messianic prophecy that Christ fulfilled. Then he goes into the time of the kings and mentions David, who again was promised this everlasting kingdom, right straight into Jesus, who fulfills all of these things that God was foreshadowing, foreshadowing within the Old Testament. He's pointing out these Jewish men, these, these, this community, that their whole identity, their whole scripture and prophets are based on this coming Messiah who has now arrived in the form of Jesus Christ. And Paul is really laying it on thick because he says, sons of the family of Abraham. That will tr trigger very much. He's, he's, he's equating Abraham and, and connecting them with Jesus. I mean, again, it's the same thing for us Americans. If someone's making this big speech about being an American, and, he's, and, we, and he, he or she says, sons of the family of Washington, that is very identifiable American. You know, sons of liberty, we would trigger that. We know exactly what that means. We would know that whatever the person is saying is for us and about us. So again... He's intertwining and deeply rooting Jesus with their culture and identity. And he's intertwining everything that the law and the prophets say, which are about the people of Israel, and everything that they hold dear with Jesus, who fulfilled all of those things that they had to memorize. And he's telling the people, rejoice, the Messiah is here, the day of salvation we are here to tell you about the salvation that has come. And now he's going to continue to explain them what happened and why he and the other disciples believe what they believe. In Acts, 20, uh, Acts 13, 27 through 32, I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. But for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. 
Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He, has seen, he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. Okay, remember, this is a group of Jews who are in Perga. Again, modern-day Turkey. That's a pretty significant distance between Israel and Turkey. As a matter of fact, it's, it's roughly about 800 miles. So it's safe to say that the, the Jews here probably kind of heard about what happened in Jerusalem with Jesus and the crucifixion and the disciples and all this stuff, but they probably didn't know the full detail. And so Paul is telling them everything that happened, that we're not just coming here and saying, just believe us, that he says, we have witnesses. These things happened. This is how it went down. And so all of these events, he's again continuously saying, according to the scriptures and studies that we've looked at for centuries and every single Sabbath, this is what happened, and this is the scripture that it's connected to. And then he goes on to say, use more Old Testament scriptures to further solidify and explain how Jesus is, again, the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited Christ. And again, this is pretty long, so I'm just going to go over it real quick with you. In 13, or 33 through 41, God has fulfilled this for us, their ch children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. There's one. And then he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. There's another one. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, there's another. You will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets comes upon you. Here's another one. Behold, you deceivers. Marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Again, scripture after scripture after scripture. It's not just we've got this revelation and we just believe and now you just have to believe us. They go over and say, remember what the Old Testament said here. Remember what the Psalms said here. Remember, remember, remember. Because again, if you look at the New Testament, any reference outside of itself is made 99.999% to the Old Testament. There's maybe one or two instances where Paul mentions a phrase or, or a proverb that maybe the Gentiles used. But 99.99% of the time, it's always the Old Testament. And they always back it up with that particular scripture. Because the whole of God's word from cover to cover is intertwined and harmonious within and of itself. And that is a miracle by itself. Because it has multiple authors. It's of multiple centuries. 
It's of multiple exiles and disasters and problems, and yet it all interconnects because ultimately it has one author and creator. So I want to emphasize again the need for the Old Testament, that we need it just as much as the New. Because if you look at your Bible, we have there's the New Testament and there's the Old Testament. And we'll, if we, you know, there's groups of people, there's Christians out there that will say, we don't need all of this anymore. All we need is this. So centuries of God's revelation and continued work in a group of people just poof, gone. It doesn't make any sense. Just because we don't have to follow the law of Leviticus does not mean it's no longer obsolete. Remember, the New Testament says that the law was given as a mirror to us to show just how sinful we are. Because God gave us this law of his, and all the rest of us would say, I can't keep that. And God's like, exactly. Now let me give you a promise of the Messiah that will help you keep that, that will fulfill everything for you. Again, it shows that it needed a savior. Abraham knew this, Moses knew this, Isaiah knew this, and they waited expectantly for the days that we now live in. They looked ahead and saw Jesus. And even though they weren't alive during his time, they put their trust in the coming Messiah. Remember, the God of the Old Testament is the same exact God of the New Testament. I hear that all the time. Boy, the God of the Old Testament was pretty mad all the time. No, he wasn't. It's just they were under the Old Covenant. If you do this, then I will do this. If you don't do this, then this will happen. That's the Old Covenant. But God still showed mercy and grace and love because one sin... One step out of line, God could have been justified to just wipe Israel out and say, I'm going to start over. I'm done with you. So God shows great love and mercy and says that this is a covenant I have with you, but it's not going to last because it's going to fulfill a new covenant. We are no longer in the old covenant anymore under the law. We now live under grace. Remember, Jesus specifically said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to take away the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill them under the new covenant of my blood and my resurrection. Which brings me to another point that I wanted to make. And it's back in, in verse 22 and onward. Notice how Peter again, or Paul flowingly goes from Moses to David to then Jesus and John the Baptist. Now for us, we have a gap in our Bible. We have a section that's called the Old Testament and a section that's called the New Testament. We have a little gap in there. But for the apostles and the disciples of this time, it's all intertwined in one. It's all from Moses to John the Baptist. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. It's all the exact same story. So my point to us, fellow Gentiles, is the Old Testament is our story now. We are connected to it. God doesn't look at the Old Testament and the Jews and think, well, this isn't working out. I guess I'll just start something new with these group of people because the Jews just aren't getting it. 
I'm always appalled by the fact that so many churches and so many Christians have this mindset that somehow we're the new chosen people of God. And again, I warn everybody, if God can change his mind about the Jews, he can change his mind about us. And that's not the God of the Bible. That somehow God is just going to toss aside the people of Israel and all the promises that he's given him, especially when Paul specifically warns against this kind of mindset. And I've said this before, but I feel like I need to point this out. Romans 11. And if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. If you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So Gentiles... The story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and everything else in there is our family story now. We have been grafted in through Christ Jesus. It's so strange that Gentiles, along with Jews, have forgotten or never even knew just how Jewish Jesus and his apostles and even the New Testament is. It's a Jewish story written by Jews. Christianity, again, this is shocking to some people, Christianity is not some centuries old but newly formed Western European religion that for some reason they just borrowed some monotheistic theology from the Jews and they just merged it together and now we have this Jesus and now this is the story that we have. The apostles were not Greek, they weren't Italian, they weren't French, they weren't German. They were Jews from Israel who then later on went to those places and gave them the gospel. Everything about the story of the New Testament is very Jewish. But on the flip side, we as Gentiles do not then have to become culturally Jewish in order to become Christian. Again, this is a centuries-old argument that's been going on for 2,000 years, and it's still going on. I, want, I watched a video of a Jewish man he doesn't believe, but he believes that Jesus existed. He believes that there are certain people who believe he's the Messiah, and he firmly believes that Jesus was a Jewish man. And he says... Again, like everybody else, well, I just don't understand. If Jesus is Jewish and you Gentiles follow Jesus, you've got to be Jewish. Why aren't you guys Jewish? You've got to become a Jew. And they're still going on to this day, even Gentiles. There's a, there's a church in Taft who is a group of Gentiles who meet on Sunday and they do all these things, but they wear the tassels, they wear the yarmulke, the men all have the beards, they, they remain kosher, because for some reason this connection that you have to be Jewish in order to be a Christian has still lingered on. But again, there's no need for us Gentiles to give up our identity as Gentiles just to follow Jesus. In fact, the whole point of being a Christian is not finding your identity in being a Gentile or a Jew. It's finding your identity in him alone. I am his people. I belong to him. 
Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Because the ultimate, down to its core, the ultimate promise that was given to Abraham when, they, when God said, you're going to be my people, was the promise was to be God's redeemed people. That included everyone. It included the Jews, the Gentiles, anyone and everything. Our identity, again, is not in what we eat, how we dress, how we speak, what festivals we celebrate, how we celebrate, what times we meet, who we meet with, how we meet. Our identity is down to the very core of our DNA is the atonement of Jesus Christ. That is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham that has been promised through Moses, through the prophets, through the law, and now has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. That we are his and his alone. That we are a grace covenant people who worship and now have relationship with the God of the universe. Because he shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And now Jew and Gentile alike however it is that you do it, can come together. And in Deuteronomy, we can all proclaim, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. We are a Gentile people who now, who were, according to the scriptures, I will be a, people, I will be a God to people who had no God. They are mine now. They are grafted into Abraham's seed. You are now Abraham's. You are now part of that promise. And that is the joy and blessing and miracle of Christ Jesus. That again, there's nothing that I have to do. I can wear a yarmulke if I want, but there's no need to. That we can sit down together and as, as a Jewish believer might sit down and enjoy fellowship and eat lentils, I can sit down with my spaghetti and just have a good time with him and have no problem because we are under the covenant of Jesus Christ. We are one people now. He doesn't set aside anything. Again, be careful with that mentality. Paul specifically says, he changed his mind about Israel, he changed his mind about you at any given moment. Because again, we are under the covenant of Jesus Christ, but we still deal with sin and struggle with sin. We could have e he could have easily said, you know what, I'm tired of the human race. But he sent his son instead to say, all, any and all will be my people. I will put my spirit into them, whoever they are, and they will follow me and I will be their God and they will be my people. Our identity, again, is completely in Christ. So remember in closing, the Old Testament is our story now. 
Abraham, Moses, David, all these people are about us now, along with us. That is part of our identity. No matter where we go, and remember, no matter where we go, whether it's a typical church service full of familiar faces or to a group of people that couldn't be more foreign to you, proclaim the good news of Christ. Use whatever typical service that they may have to declare who Jesus is. And remember, we all have grace, blessings, and promise, not with who we are or what we've done, but in Christ Jesus alone. Final verse, Romans 3, 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus, to all and on all who believe. There is no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Father, again, we thank you. We thank you that you have created us as your people. We thank you that you have ingrained us Gentiles and grafted us in, but we humbly rejoice in that. We humbly thank you that you decided to ingrain us into your story, that you began with the Jews to the Jews first and now to us, and now we can be one people. Thank you, Father, that no matter where we are, whether, we're, whether we are Jewish, whether we're Americans, whether we're Indians, whether we're African or French or whoever we are, that we share one DNA and one blood if we believe in you. We ask you, Father, to help us to live in that, to proclaim who you are, to remember that we are your people, that our very DNA is in you. And we thank you, Father, for the blessings of all of that and help us to walk in that. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, if you guys want to take this time, worship, pray, we're going to be having lunch in the cafe together and having fellowship. So God bless. and. Uh, We'll see you next time. <laughs>